Do not attempt to adjust the settings on your device. The sounds you hear are not hallucinations. You have crossed into the domain of a traveler that has a taste for telling tales about the macabre, the strange, the unusual, and the morbid. Don't be shy. Step inside and take a seat by the fire and enjoy your visit into the world that is the Nightcap Nebula. Greetings my friends, and welcome back to the Nightcap Nebula Podcast, where nothing is taboo or wicked, and the topics are always eerie and intriguing. I've covered so many topics of death, misery, and loss, that sometimes it can be a bit much for this humble narrator, and I like to think I have a pretty strong resolve. Every so often, however, it is a good measure of health to take stock of your sanity, and replenish the tank, so to speak, so that the twisted aspects of what humanity is capable of doesn't overwhelm you. What I find particularly uplifting is the resolve of humans and how they continually surprise me at every corner, whether it is positive or negative, and cruel or generous. Then there is one aspect that pushes the very boundaries of the human spirit, and touches me in ways that even myself, a being of infinite fancy, gets teary-eyed at, awash with emotion, and makes me want to test my very limits every time I come across them, and they are tales of survival. My journeys have turned up some of the most outlandish and wild stories of just how far a person can be pushed if circumstances allow, and how tenacious the will to live can be. Some of these are incredibly graphic and borderline controversial, so I must warn you to listen to some of these in private, and certainly not around those with delicate ears or those you were not familiar with. On that note, I invite you to get comfortable, turn off any distracting noise, and get ready to take a plunge into the top five mind-bending survivals. The deep freeze has its share of almost lethal consequences, from hypothermia and frostbite to delirium and going snowblind, due to the never-ending blanket of white that one sees in the frozen wastes. One such famed explorer experienced the worst cold any one person should ever go through, and pulled a hat trick by tempting fate, going out in the high seas to test his mettle once again. Sir Ernest Shackleton was born in Kilkea Country, Kildare, Ireland in 1874. Ernest was the second of ten children and the first of two sons, his brother achieving notoriety as a suspect in the 1907 theft of the so-called Irish Crown Jewels, which have never been recovered, but he was later exonerated. His father almost served in the British Army, but had to figure out another career after falling ill instead and settling on becoming a farmer. His mother tended to the family while his father worked and studied medicine at Trinity College in Dublin when Ernest was six years old. When he was ten, his parents moved to Sydenham, London, to look for more prospects as a doctor. There was speculation as to why his father relocated the family, with some believing it had to do with assassination attempts on local dignitaries amongst Anglo-Irish nationals, but it was hard to determine if that was the case. 
Since he was young, Edward was a voracious reader who gained lots of knowledge about the world, sparking his passion to explore it himself. He was schooled by a governess until the age of 11 when he began at Fir Lodge Preparatory School in West Hill, Dulwich in southeast London, and at the age of 13, he entered Dulwich College. Although he advanced remarkably fast in school, he claimed to not enjoy being there, saying his studies bored him. He expanded on this by saying he didn't learn much about geography, poetry, or literature in general, as his instructors made it more of a task rather than interesting and felt he was being imposed on. Nevertheless, despite his complaints, he still finished near the top of his class, but he didn't stay long after that, leaving at 16 to join the British Naval Cadet Academy at Dartmouth. But he hit a few snags, such as a cost and his age that cut off being 14, so he had to make other arrangements. His two options were the Mercantile Merchant Cadet Ships Worcester and Conway, or an apprenticeship before the mast on a sailing vessel which basically meant he got a real-world experience in being at sea, eventually put into a real position with a crew once his introduction was over. Ernest chose the latter. With his father's help, he boarded the Houghton Tower and his journeys began. For the next four years, he acquired trade and bartering tactics, vital maritime skills, making contacts, and traveling the globe, creating his own social network and adventure that he always dreamed of. In August 1894, he passed his examination for second mate and accepted a post as third officer on a tramp steamer of the Welshire Line. Two years later, he had obtained his first mate's ticket. In 1898, he was certified as a master mariner, qualifying him to command a British ship anywhere in the world, and he took his first assignment on the Union Castle Line, which is a regular mail and passenger carrier between Southampton and Cape Town. His shipmates described him as a bit aloof, but mild-mannered, and a little bit of a departure from other officers they had worked with, having a well-read way about him, using quotes from Keats and Browning. Ernest's time on that ship was short-lived, however, and only lasted a year due to the outbreak of the Boer War in 1899, where Shackleton transferred to the troop ship Tintagel Castle, where in March 1900, where he met an army lieutenant, Cedric Longstaff, whose father, Lewin W. Longstaff, was the main financial backer of the National Antarctic Expedition then being organized in London. On 17th February 1901, his appointment as the third officer to the expedition's ship Discovery was confirmed, and he was commissioned on June 4th into the Royal Navy with the rank of sub-lieutenant in the Royal Naval Reserve. This would mark the end of his time in the Merchant Navy service and the beginning of his time traversing some of the most treacherous places on Earth. In 1901, he joined the first expedition to the Antarctic led by British Naval Officer Robert Falcon Scott. The journey involved a challenging trek to the South Pole and was a joint venture with the Royal Society and the Royal Geographical Society. Referred to as the Discovery Expedition, named after the ship, Scott and his team embarked on their voyage on the 6th of August 1901 with much support from King Edward VIII. The journey had many objectives with some being scientific and motivated by the Royal Society's involvement while others' goals were simply exploratory. Of the latter, a major accomplishment was about to follow as a trek to the South Pole took Scott, Shackleton, and Wilson to a significant latitude, only around 500 miles away from the Pole. This was a marvelous achievement, the first of its kind, however the journey back proved too much for Shackleton, as his body was beginning to shut down from exhaustion. Faced with a difficult decision, he decided to turn back and abandon the expedition returning home to recover. For the next four years, Shackleton made a lot of major career moves, deciding to embrace a career in journalism instead and try his hand at politics as well, but didn't have a lot of luck securing a position. But he did take a secretaryship with the Royal Scottish Geographical Society in 1904, and three months later, he married Emily Dorman and had three children named Raymond, Cicely, and Edward. 
He pursued many different ventures from get-rich-quick schemes that fell through to taking on assignments with local dignitaries that could gain him quick fortune to the expedition that he wanted. But his aim with all of this was to fund another journey to the South Pole and answer the siren call still sore over not reaching it on his first attempt. In 1907, he got his opportunity. After securing enough funds from lords, ladies, and other noteworthy wealthy figureheads, Shackleton was appointed a member of the Royal Victorian Order 4th Class, which is basically a lieutenant, and his second South Pole expedition was underway on 1st of January 1908 aboard the Nimrod. Unfortunately, this venture would be fraught with problems and setbacks that would ultimately make the entire journey another failure. Starting out with coal conserving not working, Ice sheets stopping the trek, and massive weather conditions that never seemed to cease. They seemed doomed from the start. They eventually established a base camp ten months in, but they were blasted by blizzards and communication was difficult due to the howling winds. After it was all said and done, they failed to reach the South Pole, but they didn't go through the two-year struggle for nothing. The main accomplishments include the first ascent of Mount Erebus, the discovery of the Beardmore Glacier, and the discovery of the approximate location of the South Magnetic Pole, which was reached on 16th January 1909 by Edgeworth David, Douglas Mawson, and Alistair McKay. As for Shackleton, he returned to the United Kingdom as a hero, and soon afterwards published his expedition account, Heart of the Antarctic. In an amusing exchange between him and his wife when she asked about his journey, he said, A live donkey is better than a dead lion, isn't it? To which she replied, Yes, dear, I suppose it is. Shackleton had become a local hero, earned knighthood and a respect of his country, but he was deeply in debt, and aside from prestige, he was troubled, tortured, and felt unaccomplished due to his main failure and to add insult to injury. A few years after returning home, he discovered a Norwegian explorer named Roald Amundsen had completed his dream, leaving him broken. However, even if his finances were poor, those around him encouraged him to keep exploring and create a new dream, to which he did, and for the next few years, he relocated his family, went on speaking tours, and garnered public interest in funding his next proposed expedition to cross the continent of the Antarctica. The task for Shackleton and his men was a daunting one and required a great deal of preparation. The plan was to sail to the Wendell Sea and land near Vashel Bay, where they would embark on a march across the continent via the South Pole. Unable to achieve these goals in just one group, an additional party of men would set up a camp in McMurdo Sound, from where a series of depot spots would be set up in order to ensure that there were enough supplies to sustain the trekking party throughout their journey. Two ships were used, the Aurora for the Supply Depot team and Endurance, a three-mast sailing vessel for Shackleton and his intrepid voyagers. The ship was built and completed in 1912 and saved by the master shipbuilder Christian Jacobson, who would ensure that the ship was built for durability. On the 1st of August 1914, with World War I looming on the horizon, Shackleton and his 27-man team departed from London and set sail. In just a couple months, the ship reached South Georgia and the Southern Atlantic, which, unbeknownst to Shackleton and his crew, would be their last time on dry land for almost 500 days. On the 5th of December 1914, they continued on their scheduled journey, however their strategy of reaching their next base was thrown up in the air when they became trapped by pack ice in the Weddell Sea before they had a chance to reach their intended station at Vassal Bay. As the situation worsened, the ship was crushed by ice and began to drift in a northerly direction. As the ship began to sink, Shackleton and his crew were forced to accept their fate, stranded on a sheet of ice in the brutal Antarctic winter of 1915. With the ship eventually sinking into the depths, Shackleton and his crew now set up in camps on precarious sheets of ice. 
After months of surviving in such unimaginable circumstances, in April 1916, Shackleton embarked on a mission to escape and reach land. A dangerous and risky endeavor, he led his men with brave resolve despite all the obvious obstacles to the survival. The crew embarked on this voyage, leaving the ice sheets and crowding their three small boats in order to reach the intended destination of Elephant Island, a mountainous piece of land in the outer reaches of the South Shetland Islands. Eventually, after seven treacherous days at sea, the crew arrived safely at their destination. Whilst thankful to be stepping on firm ground, they were still no closer to being rescued on such a remote and uninhabited island, far away from any other human life. With little prospect of surviving on the island, Shackleton took matters into his own hands and set out once more in one of his small lifeboat vessels with five of his men in order to find help. Miraculously, the vessel and its occupants managed to navigate back towards South Georgia and in 16 days reached the island in order to ask for assistance. Now closer than ever to having a rescue mission come to the aid of his men, Shackleton made one final trip across the South Georgia island to where he knew a whaling station was positioned. From this new location, and with help now in tow, Shackleton did not let his men down, and launched a successful rescue mission to Elephant Island where the rest of his crew were waiting. Remarkably, none of the 27-man team or Shackleton died in these treacherous circumstances. In August 1916, a rescue mission recovered the Endurance men from Elephant Island, and all were safely returned home. Shackleton had not achieved his goal, that much is clear, but he had accomplished far more than that, which he probably didn't even consider impressive in comparison, but many would beg to differ. He protected and saved his crew, lived on unstable ice sheets for months, fending off disease, predators, dealing with starvation, sailing in a small boat for 16 days across an ocean, and trekking across an island to organize a rescue, not to mention the success story of their harrowing survival that most people would love to hear about and be inspired by. Part of them probably came to terms with this and began to write about his account. In 1919, Shackleton published his book South, which told his story about how he survived his journey and all the struggles he endured. Even after all this, he still managed to serve small roles in the Great War, become a major in the Russian Civil War, and go on one more expedition to the Arctic despite his ailing heart health throughout it all. Sadly, he would not live long as he began complaining of back pain and other discomfort the morning before his death, and on January 5th, 1922, he had suffered a fatal heart attack and died. Shackleton left a rich legacy and marked the end of the heroic age of Antarctic exploration of a very unknown area of terrain. Relics have been auctioned off from his expeditions, books have been written about his life, and even a genus of fungi was named after him called Shackletonia. Today, he is still talked about and revered among historians, and those that admire what it meant to really live. It should be noted that this should be used as a cautionary tale for thrill-seekers and dreamers alike. Never give up, never give in, and always remember that strength comes in many forms. Flex whenever and wherever you can. Exploration has been a constant for human curiosity since they crawled out of the primordial ooze and gained some sense of wonder and longing to know more. Naval exploration even more so, and there is no shortage of tragedy, success, and extreme hardship revolving around that. As is the case with my previous entry, our next one takes place over a century before him, and although his career is kind of like his, his determination is still notable and worth knowing, with a touch of tragedy and controversy thrown in between. 
Sir John Franklin was born on April 16, 1786 in Spilsby, Lincolnshire and was the ninth of twelve children. His father was a merchant descended from a line of country gentlemen while his mother was the daughter of a farmer, so his upbringing wasn't anything really special. Some of his siblings did good, with one of his brothers becoming a lawyer and one of his sisters having a child that married a lord. Past that, it was boring and common. Coming from such a large family with limited socioeconomic means probably created a sense of wonder and desire to be much, much more. He attended King Edward VI Grammar School in Louth and became fascinated with the life on the water. His father was strongly opposed to the idea, wanting him instead to be involved with the church or become a businessman, but ultimately gave him the opportunity to test out his newfound passion with a trial voyage on a merchant ship at the age of 12. Thinking this would turn him off to the idea, this only bolstered his need, and his father accepted it, so on March 2nd, 1800, he was secured a Royal Navy appointment on the HMS Polyphemus. During his time in the service, he participated in the Battle of Copenhagen and many other battles, an expedition with the HMS investigator around the coast of Australia, the War of 1812, and achieved the rank of lieutenant. He also commanded the HMS Trent on a journey from London to Spitsbergen, which is now called Svalbard. He gained lots of respect from his men and went on to become a very well-rounded soldier, leading to many victories, even spooking his adversaries. I could really talk about the decades-long career of this man and what he achieved in such a short amount of time, moving up in the world with only his drive to become someone feared, needed, looked up to, and remembered. But we're discussing epic stories of how humans dig deep to live, despite the odds. So let's jump right to the Copper Mine Expedition, where his notoriety was born. The Copper Mine Expedition of 1819 to 1822 was a British overland undertaking to survey and chart the area from Hudson Bay to the north coast of Canada, eastwards from the mouth of the Copper Mine River. It was organized by the Royal Navy as part of its attempt to discover and map the Northwest Passage, and it became the first of three Arctic expeditions to be led by Franklin. From the get-go, the expedition was plagued by poor planning, bad luck, and unreliable allies. Expected help from local fur traders and natives came later than expected. Malfunctioning supply lines hindered their progress, and lack of prey prevented them from moving forward. The only thing that saved them from starvation were the rice fields. Franklin was given simple orders, to travel overland to Great Slave Lake, and from there along the Coppermine River to the coast. On reaching the coast, he was advised to head east towards Repulse Bay and meet up with William Edward Perry's ships. But if it seemed better, he was also given the option of going west to map the coastline between the Coppermine and Mackenzie Rivers, or even heading north into wholly unknown seas. More serious than the ambiguity of the instructions was the fact that the expedition was organized with an extremely limited budget. John Franklin was to take only a minimum of naval personnel and would be reliant on outside help for much of the journey. Manual assistance was meant to be provided by Metis Voyagers supplied by the Hudson's Bay Company and their rivals the Northwest Company, while the local Yellow Knives First Nation members would act as guides and provide food should John Franklin's supplies run out. Only four naval personnel accompanied John Franklin, the doctor, naturalist, and second-in-command John Richardson, two midshipmen named Robert Hood and George Back, the latter of whom had sailed with David Buchanan in 1818 and an ordinary seaman named John Hepburn. As documented in his journals, a second ordinary seaman, Samuel Wilkes, was initially assigned to the party but fell ill on arriving in Canada and played no further part in the expedition and returned to England with dispatches. The trek had multiple points of traversing along the way to the coast, Cumberland House, Camp Chichuan, Fort Enterprise, and of course, Coppermine River, which was the main turning point of the journey, and things went from bad 
to worse. Up until that point, each company went through bouts of small mutinies, bickering, disagreements, settling tribal debts, and attempting to overcome the weather, which the entire company underestimated, and during their second winter in the unforgiving Canadian North, supplies arrived only intermittently, the rival companies each preferring to let the other provide for them, ammunition ran short, and the First Nations hunters were less effective than had been hoped. One of the biggest final nails in the coffin came with the party at risk of starvation. Back was sent to Fort Providence to browbeat the companies into action, having him make an unbelievable walk with third-rate snowshoes, often with no shelter between blankets and a deerskin in temperatures as low as negative 67 degrees Fahrenheit. But miraculously, he returned having secured enough supplies to meet the expedition's immediate needs. The camp saw unrelenting unrest. The two interpreters, Pierre Saint-Germain and Jean-Baptiste Adam, rebelled with Franklin's threats being ineffective. Saint-Germain and Adam insisted that as continuing into the wilderness would mean certain death, the threat of execution for mutiny was laughable. Negotiation by Willard Wenzel, the Northwest Company's representative, eventually restored an uneasy truce. The discord was not confined to the voyagers, though. Back and Hood had fallen out over their rivalry for the affections of a Yellow Knives girl nicknamed Greenstockings, and would have fought a duel with pistols over her had John Hepburn not removed the gunpowder from their weapons. The situation was diffused when Back was dispatched south with Hood, subsequently fathering a child with Greenstockings. Most of the unrest passed along with the bad weather, and in June 4, 1821, Franklin proceeded, but he had barely any plans moving forward. Once they attempted to move down the Coppermine River, it took far longer than planned, and Franklin quickly lost faith in his First Nations guides, who in fact knew the area little better than he did, and assured him that the sea was close, then far, then close again. The ice on the rivers and lakes was still firm, and for the first 117 miles of the journey, the canoes had to be dragged on sleds. The Arctic Ocean was finally sighted on the 14th of July, shortly before the expedition encountered its first Inuit camp, but they fled, and Franklin's men never had the opportunity to make further contact or trade for supplies as he had hoped. The abandoned camp gave a further indication of the scarcity of food in the area. The stalks of dried salmon were rotting and maggot infested. The drying meat consisted mainly of small birds and mice. The First Nation guides returned home as their agreement had been reached. Franklin ordered those that were leaving that Fort Enterprise be stocked for the return since he feared he may encounter weather-related problems that would put things in a stranglehold, jeopardizing the lives of him and his company. Therefore, there was a real risk that they would be close to starvation by the time they reached Fort Enterprise. Franklin frequently reiterated that well-stocked huts were crucial to their survival. Franklin set off east in three canoes with enough food for 14 days. Their progress was impeded by storms which frequently damaged the canoes. Attempts to supplement their rations by hunting were so unsuccessful that Franklin suspected the voyagers of deliberately failing to find game in order to compel them to turn around. On the 22nd of August, after about 675 miles of coastline had been mapped, Franklin stopped at a spot he designated as Point Turnagain on the Kent Peninsula, about 25 miles northeast of Cape Flinders. As he had feared, rough seas and the damage to their canoes made a return via the copper mine impossible. The party decided on a return via the Hood River, from which they would attempt to make an overland return across the barren lands. This is where the most dire times awaited them. 
Every man in the company became bitter, hungry, exhausted, and angry over the constant delays, lies, and setbacks, most getting rid of heavy supplies in favor of rationing and dealing with the very real possibility of cutting their feet on the jagged terrain, making their fate sealed due to no one willing to drag or carry them back, or, of course, freezing to death or being eaten by wild animals. Winter arrived earlier that year, game became even scarcer than it had already been, and by September 7th, the expedition's rations were exhausted. Apart from the rare deer they managed to kill, they were reduced to eating barely nutritious lichens, christened Tripe de Rocher, and the occasional rotting carcass left by packs of wolves. Desperation was such that they even boiled and devoured the leather from their spare boots, which earned Franklin the very unclever nickname, the man who ate his boots. Franklin also did not know his location, as his equipment was useless due to the area being unknown. Upon finally reaching the river, the excitement of the party turned to despair when they realized that it was way too treacherous to cross without canoes, and the ones they had were being abused by some overzealous men. Some got desperate and tried traversing the current only to be swept away or becoming invalids due to hypothermia. With the starving party weakening rapidly, the situation was saved by Pierre Saint Germain, who alone constructed a makeshift one-man canoe from willow branches and canvas. The other men cheered when on the 4th of October, he crossed the river, trailing a lifeline. The rest of the party crossed one at a time. The boat sank lower and lower in the water as they did so, but all crossed safely. After crossing, Fort Enterprise was less than a week's march away, but for some of the starving men, that would prove to be an insurmountable barrier. By the back of the line, the two weakest voyagers, Credit and Valiant, collapsed and were left where they fell. Richardson and Hood were also too weak to continue. At this point, Franklin split his party. Back, the fittest remaining officer, was sent ahead with three voyagers to bring food back from the fort. Franklin would follow at a slower pace with the remaining voyagers. Hood and Richardson would stay in their camp, with Hepburn to look after them, in the hope that one of the other parties could bring them back food. Franklin was disturbed leaving Hood and Richardson, but they were insistent that the party would have a better chance of survival without them. Franklin had only gone a short distance toward Fort Enterprise when four voyagers, Michael Terrahot, Jean-Baptiste Bellinger, Perrault, and Fontano, said they were unable to continue and asked to return to Hood and Richardson's camp. Franklin agreed. He staggered on towards Fort Enterprise with his five remaining companions growing weaker and weaker. There was no game to be found. Not that it mattered if there was, as no man had any strength to hold a rifle. Franklin made a comment which would become famous. There was no trip to Rocher, so we drank tea and ate some of our shoes for supper. Despite the odds being horribly against them, Franklin's party finally reached Fort Enterprise on the 12th of October, two days after back. However, they discovered a site there that completely broke them. It was completely deserted and unstocked. The promised supplies of dried meat were not there, and there was nothing to eat except bones from the previous winter, a few rotting skins which had been used as bedding, and a little tripe de rocher. A note from Back explained that he had found the fort in the state, and that he was heading towards Fort Providence to look for Akicho and his First Nations members. If the situation were any bleaker, it would be hard to imagine. Even Franklin wrote at how hopeless things seemed, being around grown men crying and waiting to die. Their only hope was four voyagers who accompanied them to link up with Hood and Richardson's camp, but if you thought it couldn't get any worse, have I got a most gruesome surprise for you. There was only one other man that sought out the other camp, and his name was Terahot. It took him seven days to reach them, and no one questioned how he got separated from the group, since he presented them with fresh meat he claimed to have got from hunting. 
Two days later, he brought back more, which the men eagerly ate. However, his behavior became more erratic, and would not tell the camp where he was going, and not bringing back anything from foraging, even going so far as to refuse to hunt, saying that they had better kill him, as there were no animals. It was clear by this point that the wolf meat they had been eating was human flesh, most likely from the three other voyagers Terahot said he got lost. Things soon went deadly, as one day, the camp heard a shot and found Hood dead, but Terahot standing there with a gun in his hand. The remaining men were essentially held hostage for the next three days until he left to gather lichen. Richardson took this opportunity to load his pistol and shot Terahot dead upon his return. He discovered a rifle nearby, prepared to fire, and figured the Voyager was planning on using it on the two after coming back. After surviving, Richardson and Hepburn returned to Fort Enterprise to find only four men still alive, with Peltier having only just enough strength to greet them. The floorboards have been dug up for firewood. The skins which covered the windows have been removed and eaten by the starving men. The emaciation of dead eyes of the men was something Richardson claimed would haunt him the rest of his days. Peltier died a week later, with another voyager succumbing shortly afterwards. The rest survived on lichen and maggots, which they claimed tasted as fine as gooseberries. On November 7th, help finally arrived from one of Back's men who brought food, caught fish, and treated the men with kid gloves. Within a week, everyone packed and left for Fort Providence arriving on December 11th. It was later explained by one of Back's men that the reason the fort was not stocked is because they believed the journey to be a folly and that they believed they would not return alive. Despite this, Franklin did not hold any grudges after being treated so kindly and was just glad to make it out alive. On Franklin's return to England in October 1822, none of the rumors or criticism mattered regarding his ability to navigate, losing most of his men, only mapping a minuscule portion of the coastline, poor planning for supplies, and various other scathing from those involved. The failure to meet the expedition's key goals was overlooked in favor of admiration of his tale of courage is what people cared about the most. Franklin, who had been made a commander in his absence, was promoted to captain on 20th November and elected a fellow of the Royal Society. Franklin's account of the expedition, published in 1823, was regarded as a classic of travel literature and when the publishing company could not keep up with demand, second-hand copies sold for up to 10 guineas. People on the street would recognize him and affectionately shout out about reading how he ate his boots to survive, to which Franklin always enjoyed the attention. Unfortunately, his fame was short-lived as he went on a final expedition in 1845 to discover the Northwest Passage where he and his crew vanished without a trace. But that is another story for another time. Never underestimate what you would be willing to do to live, even if you feel it is a futile action and these particular poor souls went through the worst of the ways to do so. The dead know only one thing, it is better to be alive. Antarctica seems to be a call to adventurers for the most daring around the turn of the century, and for good reason. It was largely unmapped and unexplored. Many men lost their lives on their way and never returned. But in this next story, the man in question is seen in history by some as either a hero or a monster. You make the call after hearing the tale. Douglas Mawson was born in Shipley West Riding of Yorkshire, but his family moved to Australia when he was two years old, settling in Rudy Hill, which is now a suburb of Sydney. 
They later moved to Glebe in 1893, where Douglas attended Forest Lodge Public School, Fort Street Model School, later attending the University of Sydney, graduating in 1902 with a bachelor's in engineering. Not much has been documented about his family or how he was raised, but it's assumed that his interest in exploring began early through various instructors encouraging him to learn more. In 1903, he got his first major assignment being the geologist in expedition New Hybrids, now Varnatu, and published one of the first geological reports in the geology of the New Hybrids, as well as publishing a paper in New South Wales. In 1905, he took a job as a lecturer in petrology and mineralogy at the University of Adelaide, and also identified the mineral Devidite. In 1907, Mawson joined Ernest Shackleton's Nimrod expedition to the Antarctic, which lasted two years and originally intended to stay for the duration of the ship's presence in the first summer. Instead, both he and his mentor, Edgeworth David, stayed an extra year. In doing so, they became in the company of Alistair McKay, the first to climb the summit of Mount Erebus and to trek to the South Magnetic Pole, which at that time was overland. During their stay, they also wrote, illustrated, and printed the book Aurora Australis, which described his experience. If only this had been his magnum opus, he had no idea what awaited him in the next few years, or he surely would have thought twice about venturing off again. Mawson had invitations to go on various expeditions, but had passed on them all, and instead wanted to lead one of his own. So for the next year, he gathered funds for the Australasian Antarctic Expedition to King George V's land and Adelaide land, the sector of Antarctic continent immediately south of Australia, which at the time was almost entirely unexplored. The objectives were to carry out geographical exploration and scientific studies, including a visit to the South Magnetic Pole. The ship used was called the S.Y. Aurora and departed Hobart on December 2, 1911 and landed at their destination of Camp Denison on Commonwealth Bay on January 8, 1912, establishing two base camps, one at the Cape and another on an ice shelf in Queen Mary Land. Cape Denison proved to be unrelentingly windy. The average wind speed for the entire year was about 50 miles per hour, with some winds approaching 200 miles per hour. They built a hut on the rocky cape and wintered through nearly constant blizzards. Mawson wanted to do aerial exploration and brought the first aeroplane to Antarctica. The aircraft, a Vickers REP-type monoplane, was to be flown by Francis Howard Bickerton. When it was damaged in Australia shortly before the expedition departed, plans were changed, so it was to be used only as a tractor on skis. However, the engine did not operate well in the cold, and it was removed and returned to Vickers in England while the aircraft fuselage itself was abandoned. Over the next few months, wind speeds on the coast averaged 50 miles per hour and sometimes topped 200, and blizzards were almost constant. Mawson's plan was to split his expedition into four groups, one to the main base camp and the other three to head into the interior to do scientific work. He nominated himself to lead what was known as the Far Eastern Shore Party, a three-man team assigned to survey several glaciers hundreds of miles from base, which was an especially risky assignment due to the blistering winds, and Mawson and his men have the furthest to travel, having the heaviest loads to carry, and they would have to cross an area pitted with deep crevasses, each concealed by snow. Mawson selected two companions to join him. Lieutenant Belgrave Ninnis, a British Army officer, was the expedition's dog handler. The explorers took three sledges, pulled by a total of 16 huskies and loaded with a combined 1,720 pounds of food, survival gear, and scientific instruments. Mawson limited each man to a minimum of personal possessions, with most of them being books, photographs, and diaries. Mawson's party made good time at first, departing from Commonwealth Bay on November 10, 1912, and covered 300 miles by December 13th. 
almost everything was going according to plan. The three men reduced their load as they ate their way through their supplies, and only a couple of sick dogs had hindered their progress. Even so, Mawson felt troubled by a series of peculiar incidents which, he would write later, might have suggested to a superstitious man that something was badly amiss. First, he had a strange dream one night, a vision of his father. Mawson had left his parents in good health, but the dream occurred he would later realize shortly after his father had unexpectedly sickened and died. Then the explorers found one husky, which had been pregnant, devouring her own puppies. This was normal for dogs in such extreme conditions, but it unsettled the men. Other incidents occurred, such as near falls into glacier cracks, snow blindness, wounds that would spread causing increased pain, and minor finger amputations. Then tragedy struck when Lieutenant Ninnis went ahead, and instead of redistributing his weight between his sled, ran alongside it, and this would prove fatal as he fell into a deep crevasse with his dogs and supplies in tow. Mawson did all he could to contact and rescue Ninnis, the dogs and supplies, but they were lost. Faced with a hard and potentially detrimental decision, Mawson gathered up what was left and battled on a return trip to the other base camp, then back to Commonwealth Bay, but this would lead, unfortunately, to a most gruesome outcome. After a brief funeral service, Mawson and Mertz turned back immediately. They had one week's provisions for two men and no dog food but plenty of fuel and a Primus stove. They sledged for 27 hours continuously to obtain a spare tent cover they had left behind, for which they improvised a frame from skis and a Thedolite. Their lack of provisions forced them to use their remaining sled dogs to feed the other dogs and themselves. Mawson wrote in his journal that the meat was stringy and tough had to be heavily boiled and seasoned with pemmican. Even with these measures, their hunger was not sated, and their physical deterioration happened quickly. Both men suffered dizziness, nausea, abdominal pain, irrationality, mucosal fissuring, skin, hair, and nail loss, and the yellowing of their eyes and skin. Later, Mossa noticed a dramatic change in his traveling companion, where Mertz seemed to lose the will to move and wished only to remain in his sleeping bag. He began to deteriorate rapidly with diarrhea and madness. On one occasion, Mertz refused to believe he was suffering from frostbite and bit off the tip of his own little finger. This was soon followed by violent raging. Mawson had to sit on his companion's chest and hold him down to prevent him from damaging their tent. Mertz suffered further seizures before falling into a coma and dying on 8th of January, 1913. Unfortunately for the men, it was unknown at the time that husky liver contained extremely high levels of vitamin A, which can cause liver damage to humans due to such a toxic amount. With six dogs between them, it is thought that the pair ingested enough liver to bring on a condition known as hypervitaminosis A. However, Mertz may have suffered more because he found the tough muscle tissue difficult to eat and therefore ate more of the liver than Mawson. Being on his own now, Mawson continued the final 100 miles with basically nothing. During his return trip to the main base, he fell through the lid of a crevasse and was saved only by his sledge wedging itself into the ice above him, but he managed to climb out using the harness attaching him to the sled. His feet were so blistered, frostbitten, and raw that his socks fused to his skin, and when he removed them, it took pieces off with the fibers. Barely able to cover five miles a day, he had to use makeshift sledges out of what he had left and go at a snail's pace. One of Mawson's greatest fears was that he too would stumble into a crevasse, and on January 17th, he did. But by a piece of incredible good fortune, however, the fissure that opened was a little narrower than his half-sledge. With a jerk that all but snapped his fragile body clean in two, Mawson found himself dangling 14 feet down above an apparently bottomless pit, spinning slowly on his fraying rope. 
Struggling with all his might, Mawson inched his way up hand over hand. Several times he lost his grip and slipped back, but the rope held. Sensing that he had the strength for one final attempt, the explorer clawed his way to the lip of the crevasse, every muscle spasming, his raw fingers slippery with blood. Spent, he lay by the edge of the chasm for an hour before he recovered sufficiently to drag open his packs, erect the tent, and crawl into his bag to sleep. Determined to return with the research data, Mawson battled all this and more, including the elements, for some 30 days, finally stumbling into base camp in February of 1913, emaciated, no hair, frostbitten, and exhausted, only to discover he had missed the ship that was tasked with retrieving the rest of the crew by mere hours. This ended up being a hidden blessing, however, as he lived in solitude for another winter to reflect on all he went through. While he was hailed as a heroic survivor, as well as later being knighted with his face now adorning the Australian $100 bill, there are questions about what extreme measures he may have taken to stay alive. A 2013 biography of Mawson suggests he may have purposefully set his and Mertz's starvation rations at a level that would have hastened his companion's death, and that he boiled and ate Mertz's corpse in order to survive. Mawson's descendants deny this allegation, of course. He was awarded the Founders Medal in 1915 by the Royal Geographical Society among various other accolades, wrote a book chronicling his life and death scenario, and permanently etched himself as a prominent explorer that accomplished more than most becoming an icon in Australian history. When it comes to nature, it bows to no man or woman. Sea, land, ice, snow, or heat. Given enough exposure time to each, they will consume all, and make no mistake, they will show no mercy. Let's get out of the frigid air for a bit and go to the other end of the extremes, the arid scorching heat. If you thought avalanches, blizzards, glaciers, tundras, and other hazards of the frozen waste was bad, try dehydration, heat stroke, literally burning up, extreme thirst, venomous animals of the land, vicious dust storms that are more powerful than any industrial sandblaster, and on and on. Get ready for one hell of a story where the next person in question braves one of the most inhospitable versions of these climates, the Sahara. Mauro Prosperi was born on July 13, 1955 in Rome. Not much is known about his childhood, but after attending secondary school in 1974, he started working for the National Police Force in Italy as a crowd control police officer. Always pushing himself in life, he trained on the side for the Olympics in pentathlon cross-country running, and it was one of these that he met his wife, who worked as an English and Russian interpreter. They married after six months and ended up having three kids. They are, however, no longer married due to the nature of his lifestyle, which isn't really explained further as to what that means. None of that matters, however, as the story begins 20 years prior. Learning about the ultramarathon, Mauro trained every day running 25 miles and reducing water consumption to get his body used to dehydration in anticipation for the event and weather. He also had to sign a waiver saying that he knew the risks associated with the run and asked each competitor where they want their body to be sent in case of death. That would give anyone pause, but not this man. Mauro flew to Morocco to begin the race, and although it now draws roughly 1,300 participants each year, providing a heightened sense of safety in numbers, the 1994 event reportedly had only 134 competitors that first year. As a result, Prosperi says he went on his own for most of the six-day journey. He had a relatively smooth first few days. Good pacing, water rationing was solid, and he had no trouble getting to each checkpoint. 
However, the fourth day of the marathon constitutes its longest single stage, with a 57-mile trek through the desert between campsites. On April 14, 1994, blistering sun elevated temperatures to 115 degrees Fahrenheit as Prospery passed the third checkpoint 20 miles into the day's journey. Per regulations, he picked up his allotted 2-liter ration of water and continued running. Shortly after 1 o'clock, high winds brought on an unexpected sandstorm that caused organizers to pause the race for the day. Other competitors waited out the storm and eventually made it to the fourth checkpoint by nightfall, but Prospery had disappeared. The following morning, ground and air search parties were sent out to look for him. The Moroccan military and Bidden trackers joined in the search, but they found no trace of Prospery. In an interview, he said that he had got lost in a sandstorm and thought he could see the trail, so he kept on going, being in a good position in the race, but it became dark after the winds relented and it became apparent that he was lost. Prospery had attempted to backtrack, but it became way too dark, so he made camp and resumed the search at dawn, only to find his surroundings completely unfamiliar. He had little food and almost no water left. Following race guidelines to remain stationary and wait for rescue should a competitor get into trouble, Prospery sat on the sand dune all day. In the afternoon, he says a rescue helicopter flew almost directly above his position, but failed to notice him. The next day, he decided to begin walking again. He later told the BBC that he had a compass and a map, but since he had no points of reference, it made his tools virtually useless. The next day, while attempting to get his bearings, Prospery noticed in the distance what appeared to be a solitary structure. As he approached, he recognized it as a marabout shrine, an abandoned tomb for a Muslim religious leader. Although there was no rescue to be found here, the shrine provided shade and other resources. In an attempt to stay hydrated, Prospery sucked on wet wipes from his pack, licked morning dew off rocks, and drank his own urine while it remained relatively clear before it became too toxic to consume. He also used his pee to rehydrate and cook the freeze-dried food in his pack since no other water was available, although this was risky since even boiled, excessive consumption of bodily fluids can lead to sickness and organ failure. His situation quickly became more dire after his food stockpiles ran out. He had to resort to scavenging for bird eggs and beetles, killing and consuming raw bats and lizards he found near the shrine, and hoping to absorb any moisture that may be removed by cooking the flesh. Anti-diarrhea medicine in this pack helped him avoid losing more water despite this extreme and potentially fatal diet. He was quickly losing hope, thinking this would consist of the rest of his short life. In another missed and demoralizing opportunity, another airplane passed right over Prospery's location. He says he tried to signal by lighting a small fire and writing SOS in the sand, but the plane continued towards the horizon, missing his attempts at contact. Feeling defeated, beyond exhausted, hungry, and rapidly losing his mind, Prospery decided to end his present pain and any future suffering. Taking his pocket knife, he slit his wrists, hoping for a quick death. In a cruel twist of fate, his dehydrated blood coagulated and prevented him from perishing. He knew he had no choice but to continue on as the sweet release from reality was not in the cards. In a final attempt to reach safety, Prospery set out from the shrine and began walking towards mountains he saw in the distance, traveling in the early morning and late evening to avoid the heat of the day. He left pieces of his gear behind to form a trail of breadcrumbs, and although he believed the mountains to be in the direction of the Marathon's trail, this route would actually take him even further into the Sahara. Trudging on, he passed dry riverbeds squeezing liquid from plant roots in an effort to get any moisture. 
Then, after eight days in the desert, Prosperi found a desert oasis. He told the BBC that he found a large oasis with a tiny puddle that he eagerly slurped up, but he ended up puking due to the rapid intake of liquid, so he had to space it out in 10-minute increments. Filling up his canteen with whatever it could hold, he continued on until he came across a pile of goat droppings that looked fresh. Searching around for signs of life, he saw nothing but footprints which he followed eventually running into an 8-year-old nomad girl who was part of a caravan who he flagged down. They immediately gave Prospery goat's milk and then took him via camel to the nearest village. Despite starting in Morocco, Prospery had traveled 180 miles from where he disappeared, unknowingly wandering into Algeria. Local military police initially confronted him due to tensions between the two countries, but after finding out who he was, they took him to a hospital. Prosperi reportedly lost 35 pounds, weighing in at just 99 pounds when he was rescued. Doctors said his liver had almost completely failed, and hospital staff gave him 16 liters of intravenous fluids. He was reunited with his family and received a warm welcome back to Italy, although he was unable to eat solid food for several months after the ordeal, and he says that he didn't recover for almost two years. Of course, story of his harrowing ordeal had its fair share of skeptics and criticizers, with a few adventurers and journalists doubting the accuracy of Prospery's story, considering the near-superhuman feats it entailed. Some claimed he staged or exaggerated the ordeal for money and fame, with the Marathon's founder Patrick Bauer telling Men's Journal that the story is a fabrication and physiologically impossible. These statements caused Prospery to consider a lawsuit against Bauer, but he eventually dropped it, stating that the dispute was personal rather than legal. Medical examiners saw his deep laceration on his wrist from where he attempted suicide, and documentary teams seemed to refute detractors by visiting the shrine and finding bat skeletons and discarded belongings that made his story highly plausible. Today, he is still seen as a survivor and admired by those he comes into contact with. Those who can't stand the heat should indeed stay out of the kitchen, but if one is faced with a situation where you have no choice but to cook or burn, it's best to get creative and flourish, or become a lasting crispy reminder to those that couldn't muster up reasons to embellish on the gourmet dish that is vitality. If you know anything about any of the world wars, you understand how it shaped how you humans live. Technology, food, nations, diplomacy, and transportation, among many other things. Without war, the human race would most likely be at a standstill, with nearly everything as the race to kill one another in greater numbers seems to fast-track innovation, as sad as that is. War also spawns some of the worst attributes a person can demonstrate, sometimes too horrific to mention out loud. And if they are, it comes in hushed tones. Our last story demonstrates the absolute shocking nature of this, with the Chichijima incident. America has had a lot of hero presidents, and some would claim have been less than stellar in terms of how they approached their service during their campaign. But George H.W. Bush did not shy away from his service during his bid for president, and he had quite the ordeal that would have broken most men. Sadly, his tale was not widely talked about due to the gravity of his experience, and the information on the others involved in the more sickening part of his ordeal was all but buried. George H.W. Bush was 17 when the United States entered the war after the Pearl Harbor attacks and signed up to join the military the moment he turned 18. Being a quick study, 
He became the youngest aviator in the U.S. Navy and was assigned to a pilot a three-person Avenger dive bomber in the Torpedo Squadron in the Pacific. The U.S. Navy had its eye on the island of Chichijima for quite some time. It was a tiny piece of land, only about twice the size of Central Park, but strategically significant. About 500 miles from Japan, its radio tower allowed the Japanese to send long-range messages. For this reason, the Americans wanted to take it out. Throughout June 1944, American aircraft carriers surrounded the island and started sending pilots to destroy the radio tower, but the Japanese put up a ferocious fight, which was not what was expected. Guarded by 25,000 Japanese troops and an anti-aircraft defense system that could tear the American planes to pieces, they were in for a long battle. After months of stalemates and losses, those in command were growing impatient. With a final push on September 2nd, 1944, they geared up to try again. Their group of men slated to fly that morning included George H.W. Bush, and the squadron took off at 7.15 a.m., hoping this time to succeed in taking out Shishijima's radio tower. Shortly into the mission, the bombers felt the full fury of the Japanese AA guns, and about an hour into the mission, Bush realized that his plane had been hit. He recalled that the plane was burning and the cockpit was beginning to fill up with smoke, thinking it would surely explode. In spite of this, Bush continued flying managing to drop two bombs on the radio tower before pulling the plane back toward the open ocean. Bush wanted to get as far away from Chichijima as he could before jumping. He figured that doing so might help him evade capture, and he was right. When he couldn't wait any longer, Bush ordered his radio operator and gunner to jump, but only he escaped. One of the other men couldn't get his parachute to inflate, and the other wasn't able to jump from the plane. Bush watched in horror as their plane crashed into the ocean, floating down into the waves alone. Had he not done this, he would have been a part of the real horror that awaited eight of the airmen that were unfortunately captured by the Japanese. Oh, so you thought this was about George H.W. Bush alone? You have been fooled. Sit back and let me tell you of the sick, disgusting, depraved, and unspeakable acts that occurred while he was wading around in the water, unaware of what he was about to avoid. The other planes that were shot down yielded eight survivors that were snatched up by the Japanese and included Lloyd Wolhoff, Grady York, James Jimmy Dye, Glenn Fraser Jr., Marvel Marv Mershon, Floyd Hall, Warren Earl Vaughn, and Warren Hindenlang. Around this time, the war in the Pacific was reaching its breaking point with soldiers on various islands and the morale was low. Getting a hold of American POWs was like a gift to these soldiers, and it was well known to US personnel just how cruel they could be, but nothing prepared these poor souls for what was about to come their way. Brought to the island of Chichijima, the airmen were tortured, beaten, and executed. In one particularly gruesome moment, a radio operator was marched to a freshly dug grave, blindfolded, and then beheaded with a sword, and the others were killed with sharpened bamboo spears. One was even clubbed to death. That was just the beginning of the atrocities. Things didn't start getting unforgivable until after the men were killed. Shortly after one of the prisoners had been executed, Japanese General Yoshio Chashibana made an absolutely grotesque, drunken suggestion to dig up one of the bodies and use it as meat. He insisted that everyone show they had enough fighting spirit to eat human flesh. As a result, surgeons removed the liver and thigh muscles of the soldiers, which cooks then presented to the Japanese officers on bamboo sticks with soy sauce and vegetables alongside hot sake. The dish was apparently a delicacy, and according to Mori, was believed to be good for the stomach. 
Major Seo Motaba, who was among the senior officers who cannibalized the American soldiers, later attempted to defend his actions, saying that these incidents occurred when Japan was being defeat after defeat, and that troops became excited, agitated, seething with uncontrollable rage, and beyond hungry. He also claimed that no one that participated were cannibals, which is a very interesting and ridiculously dismissive thing to say, despite what they did, regardless of the excuses. Meanwhile, in the ocean, Bush fought for his life in the middle of the sea, as Japanese boats circled nearby hoping to capture him. Fortunately for him, fire from the American planes above drove them back. He stated later that he was throwing up, crying, and begging internally for help, knowing it probably would not come anytime soon, so he kept fighting to stay above the water. After an undetermined amount of time passed, he thought he'd gone mad when a submarine suddenly breached the waves in front of him. It was the submarine USS Finback. After he was pulled from the ocean, the exhausted future president uttered just four words, happy to be aboard. While his short survival story is well known, what happened on Chichijima was not. Although the Japanese officers responsible for the Shishijima incident later admitted their actions at war crime trials in Guam, the American soldiers' families didn't know what had happened to their sons. Concerned that a true account would inflict further trauma on already grieving families, the U.S. decided to label the files recounting the soldiers' last days as top secret and was largely forgotten until James Bradley, son of Corpsman John Bradley, who was one of the men who raised the first flag on Iwo Jima, published a book in 2009 on the subject called Flyboys, A True Story of Courage. The public finally knew what occurred on that seemingly insignificant ball of dirt and was out in all its gory savagery. The information was so secretive, in fact, that Bush did not know about it until after learning of the book. Bradley recounted that the ex-president hardly showed any reaction, just a sullen appearance that showed he had seen and heard enough during his service that this was just more icing on the cake. Still, it shows just how war can shape someone's resolve and reaction to things that would churn the stomachs of those that thankfully never had to see the true face of human nature. If you were to take the bodies of everyone that lost their lives since man invented global conflict and stand them all up at once, there wouldn't be any room for the living. Keep that in mind the next time your country gets the urge to pacify a nation for resources or sovereignty. The hidden costs may be greater than you may be willing to bear. And so at last we come to the end of our chronicling the feats of human endurance, fortitude, and outright balls of steel. Thank you so much for supporting this program. I hope you enjoyed listening as much as I enjoyed narrating. Be sure to like and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Also, be sure to follow me for news about the podcast on Instagram at the Nightcap Nebula Pod. I also have merchandise on Tee Public under the Nightcap Nebula Podcast, such as t-shirts and mugs for when you want to pour out some hot cocoa and get cozy by the fire as you listen to my segments. Until next time, be safe and stay curious.